morning. How are we doing this morning? Three people are good. Good. Glad to hear it. I'll get an update from the rest of you later. Okay. Uh, before we get started this morning, um, our youth group is on a mission trip to Nashville. And uh, I would love for us just to take a moment to pray for them. We uh, can't send them off because they've already left. Uh, but we can pray for them from pray for them from here. So let's do that. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity um, to go and do missions in other places. I know that not only do we get to have an impact on the people that we go to, um, but you tend to really work on us when we're um, out of our normal environment. We're a little softer, a little more vulnerable mentally. And it seems to be those are the times when you really um, do pretty heavy lifting in our lives. And so I just pray, Lord, for the students that are on this trip and the leaders that are on this trip, that they would experience you in a powerful way. Um, that this would be a major block in their faith, a major um, building block, a major step in their faith. I pray, Lord, for the leaders, that they would have patience for the students, um, that they would be well-equipped for what they're doing. And I pray for the people that they're impacting, um, that they would get to experience um, you through the students. And so, Lord, we just thank you that we get to do these things. And we pray for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I am James, one of the pastors here at PV. Uh, whether you're joining us online later or now, we're glad that you're here. Um, and this morning, uh, I am slightly sleep deprived. Before anybody gets excited, no, my baby has not come yet. <laughs> uh, if that were the case, I'd be laying down. Um, <laughs> some of you aren't parents, apparently. Um, <laughs> But uh, actually, we just had Camp Awesome this week, which was an amazing experience. Uh, and so if you don't know much about Camp Awesome, I'm going to give you a very, very rapid picture. We set up starting Sunday after church. We pretty much carry set up and training all the way through Tuesday. And then starting Wednesday through Friday, we have the kids come here. They get to do uh, a morning rally and an evening rally. They have classes in the middle, lunchtime, all those kind of things, some fun stuff. Uh, and during the morning rally, we have a message that's tailored to them. Um, it's pretty much always the same pattern. The first day is usually talking about what sin is and why sin is bad. The second day is talking about Jesus and why we need him. And the third day is talking about what's next. Um, and so uh, we had a friend named Erin come and do that. She used to work here. She did an excellent job. Uh, we had 220 students attend. Yeah, that's exciting. And we had 17 kids decide that they wanted to give their lives to Jesus and follow him. So, yeah. So it's a really, really cool event. Very exciting and a lot of fun. A little tiring. Um, <laughs> and then uh, yesterday we were out of town and I was busy. And so I'm a little sleep deprived. So if you see me like zone out, it's either because I can't remember what I was going to say next. Or I've just taken a quick nap and I'll be back with you in just a second. So... Uh, <laughs> So please have grace for me this morning. Uh, and on that note, let's pray. <laughs> Father, I know that um, ultimately this doesn't come down to me. It doesn't come down to my capacity. It doesn't come down to my sleep capabilities or anything else. This is about you. And we know, Lord, that it is your spirit that teaches, your spirit that moves, your spirit that works inside of us, um, that it is your word that has impact, not mine. 
And it doesn't really matter if I'm super focused today or a little trippy on my words, because you, God, are the one that speaks, and you're the one we want to hear from, not me. And so, Lord, I just pray, as we get into your word today, um, would you speak clearly to us? Would you be preparing our hearts to receive what you have to say? Would you be activating your word with your spirit and bringing it to life in us? We ask that you would show us yourself today and teach us how to follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so, to catch you up, we're in this series of Acts up to this point. Uh, we have gotten to see the church uh, operating primarily in Jerusalem. A lot of activity going on in, in the area of Jerusalem. Very much a large building happening there of people. It's been a really cool uh, thing to watch happen as that church just blows up. But God obviously has a plan for the church, and it's not just that area, right? And so we actually saw in uh, Daniel's passage last week, he just did uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. I'm going to do the rest of chapter 8, so wish me luck. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and we saw in, in that passage, it said, and there arose on that day, the day that, that, uh, Stephen was martyred, there, there arose on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. The apostles were able to stay in place. And we're not really given an explanation of what happened there. Uh, and so Christians are being scattered, and at first glance, someone who doesn't understand or just hasn't really thought about it might be like, oh, wow, I guess the church kind of got defeated there, huh? But actually, we see a very obvious hand of God moment here, right? Uh, God essentially disperses the church, right? They were kind of, they're kind of holing up a little bit in their, their place, and that might have been the appropriate thing for them to do at that time. But God has plans for them, and it's way beyond just that one city, right? And so God scatters them. And so he sends them out. And it's really cool because verse 4, where we start, says this. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it worked, right? They, they all went to different places. They were scattered out, and they all start sharing what they've all just learned in all these different areas, right? And so the word is being preached all through different places. And specifically, it's being preached in Judea and Samaria, which are two regions. And we'll talk about that in just a second. And so we would kind of expect that the uh, apostles are probably involved in this, right? But remember, it said, except the apostles. The apostles are still back at home base. Everyone else is doing the work, right? And so if, you, <laughs> if you've ever kind of had that like thought like, well, it's kind of a pastor's job or whatever, this is a good counterverse for that, right? That really sharing the gospel, sharing about Jesus, that's everyone's job, right? Because the main guys, they're still back in Jerusalem. It's everyone else that's carrying the word of Jesus to everyone. And so quick, simple, easy reminder for us, hey, that's our job. All of us, right? We need to be doing that with our friends and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors and all that kind of thing, because who else is going to tell them, right? You might be the only person who knows Jesus in their life. And so Judea and Samaria specifically are interesting places for them to be scattered to. And it should sound familiar. And here's why, because back in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Acts 1.8, I wrote Jesus 1.8 for some reason. We're going to see that happening here and there. <laughs> um, <laughs> In Acts 1-8, um, we saw Jesus specifically tell them, before he departed, he said, 
He said, uh, but you will receive power from the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which happened at, at uh, Pentecost, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they started, and in Judea and Samaria, which is where they are now, and to the ends of the earth, which is where they're about to head. But we won't get ahead of ourselves. Today, we're just talking about Judea and Samaria. Now, if you have no idea uh, what <laughs> Judea or Samaria is, I don't blame you because I didn't either. Um, and so I had to spend a little time digging into this and get my head around everything because uh, it's, it's complicated. And so I'm going to try to abbreviate it and possibly butcher it. Um, but bear with me here. So there are three regions that are significant in the, in the storyline of most of the New Testament. It's Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. They are regions. They're not countries. Don't let that confuse you. Uh, they're, they're sections of the Roman Empire, essentially districts, if you will. Okay? And so, basically, if you were looking on a map, down at the very bottom, you're going to see Judea, and then you're going to see Samaria, and then you're going to see Galilee. Now, for those of you who like this sort of thing, uh, Samaria roughly represents, not the exact same region, but roughly represents the northern kingdom of Israel. That's, that's about what that territory is, roughly. Uh, the little extra Galilee portion would have been included in the northern kingdom of Israel back when David was reigning and he kind of had expanded the kingdom out. That, that portion is what Galilee would be. And then down at the bottom, Judea is roughly, roughly uh, Judah. Now we're losing some pieces and adding some pieces. But just to give you kind of an idea of like what we're talking about, if you know the Old Testament, those are the spaces we're talking about. And one more quick uh, geographical note because this gets confusing and a lot of people don't know this, Samaria is both a town and a region, okay? So if that's ever confused, it's actually a city, not a town. It's, it's both a city and a region. So if that's ever confused you, that, that is a confusing thing. It's kind of like New York City, except they don't add the word city. It's just Samaria, right? So it's Samaria, Samaria. <laughs> so, uh, and that's actually the capital of that region. So just so you know, that's going to come into today's story and that'll make a lot more sense now that you know that. Now, one other thing you want to know, Samaria is the, uh, or Samaritans are the descendants of the, the remnants of the Northern Kingdom. If you remember, the Northern Kingdom was, came, was conquered. They were taken away. Some people were left behind. And then Assyria brought in a bunch of people into the Northern Kingdom. They were kind of mixing people around essentially. And so they brought a bunch of people into the Northern Kingdom and uh, into, into Israel. And that group of people became the Samaritans. So there's a little bit of Israelite in there and there's a bunch of Assyrians mixed in there. And so they had a lot of sort of like strange theology mixed together, right? Because they were bringing their gods and stuff from different places. It kind of got all mushed together, but eventually it kind of filtered out and there's, there's some factors we won't get into for why it filtered out into the Samaritans believe in Yahweh, but they only believe the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, okay? And that is the, the sort of problem between them and the now Israelites in Judah, that's, that's why there's so much tension. And, and that tension really comes down to uh, one particular sort of obvious point, which is where worship should occur. Because they believe in the first five books, they don't think that, Israel, uh, that uh, Jerusalem was picked by God. They think that a particular mountain, which we don't need to get into, was picked by God as the place for worship. They, the way that their version of scriptures reads is that he had already picked it 
in the first five books. Okay, and so we don't really need to get too caught up on that. Just understand that when you hear that conflict between uh, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at, at the well, you remember, and, and she kind of, you Jews think we should do it over there and we think we should do it on this mountain. And Jesus is like, You're, it, it doesn't matter because eventually everybody's gonna worship everywhere, right? That's essentially how J Jesus answers her. What she was bringing up was sort of the most obvious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. That, that's, but really the foundation of that is that they don't believe the rest of the Old Testament. That's, that's what's going on. So that gives you just a little bit of context as to the tension between Jews and Samaritans, right? Because Jews see Samaritans as like sort of half followers of God, right? They like, they got bits and pieces, right? But they're missing a bigger picture. They don't really follow God. And we even see that a little bit in the way that Jesus replies to the Samaritan woman, because he kind of says, you worship what you don't know. In other words, yeah, you worship God, but you don't really know him, right? So as these Christians are being spread out into Judea, that's easy because they worship the same God. They're just trying to connect the dots between this God who promised a Messiah has fulfilled that promise in Jesus, right? That's all they're trying to do with it. So it's a little more of a straightforward path. For the Samaritans, it's a little more complicated because the Samaritans don't really have an obvious Messiah text that they can go to, okay? And so we'll kind of see some of that coming up. So let's keep going. Now we have kind of a grip on where we are at verse five. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, so this is the capital, uh, and proclaimed to them the Christ, okay? So bit more difficult because he has a lot less to work with. There are messianic prophecies in the first five books of the uh, Old Testament, the Pentateuch, but they're not quite as obvious. They're not quite as like clear cut to be like, look, see? And so it's a little more difficult what he's trying to do, but he's proclaiming the Christ. And here's what's cool. Oh, by the way, Philip, let's talk about Philip. Should mention him real quick. If you don't remember Philip, he's one of the seven that was chosen to serve tables. Remember that whole thing? This just happens to be the last thing I preached on. Um, and so Stephen was one of them, the guy who we just saw martyred. Philip is another one of them. So we kind of completed Stephen's story. Now we're going to look at Philip's story and what Philip is doing, okay? And so uh, he's likely a Hellenist. Um, so he's, he's kind of a ca uh, cast out, outcast. That's the correct way to say that. An outcast of, uh, of his people. And so that gives him maybe a little credibility with the Samaritans. We'll see. Um, and so here's what happens. It says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, which is awesome, right? Like you would think this is going to be a pretty difficult process to, to convince these Samaritans to listen to a Jew about a Messiah they're not convinced of, but they're on board. They're listening. They're like ready to respond, right? Obviously the spirit is working in this place. And it says, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, right? So those signs were certainly helping. They're like, well, he's doing miracles. Hard to explain that, right? For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So Philip is doing like big miraculous things, right? Like pretty obvious signs and wonders that are getting their attention. And they're like, okay, we're, we're listening, right? And in fact, it even says in verse eight, so there was much joy in that city. Which is really cool, right? When you think about that, that's, that's a cool thing. There's like this, this wave of joy happening because they're like, this guy's awesome and he's telling us really cool things, right? And assumedly that a lot of that joy is coming from them listening to the gospel and hearing this opportunity for their sins to be forgiven, for them to have a route to the God that the Jews have been saying they have no route to, right? This is really exciting for them. And so it says at verse nine, but there was a man named Simon 
And Simon's an interesting character that we're going to see more of, who had previously practiced magic in the city, which I think it's interesting is previously. It's not real clear if he had stopped before Philip came or if he stopped when Philip came. It's a little, little hard to say, but one way or another, he stopped doing that and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. That's significant, right? Imagine trying to get a whole city behind one guy, right? Uh, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest and saying, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. You may notice that this, this uh, sentence is a little clunky, right? It's kind of a clunky way to, to, to read. Um, that is because the Greek is a little fuzzy here. And, and translators have a little trouble figuring out, are they saying that he is a representative of God or are they saying that he is God? And, and so he, it's possible that Simon was actually being called a God. Uh, and in fact, tradition uh, through the church and some other sources indicate that might actually be the case, that, that Simon was being called a God by the people, that they thought he was like a God come down. And so uh, whatever the case, Simon has some mega influence over these people, okay? And so it says, and they paid attention to him for a long time uh, and because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. By the way, we're never told what kind of magic we're talking about here. Uh, this could be simply tricks, right? Like we, when we think of a magician or more likely it's probably satanic power, some form of satanic power, um, whether that's witchcraft or that's some sort of uh, like fortune telling or something like that. We're not given clear indication as to what it is. Whatever the case, this guy is hugely influential. People are really buying into what he has to say. And so it says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So a few things happening here. Number one, they're turning away from Simon. They're like, I, I think this guy's maybe wrong, right? Like there's something off with this guy. I think Philip's actually got it right. So turning away from him, they're being baptized into Jesus, which is an exciting thing. It specifically notes men and women because oftentimes the uh, writers of the New Testament want to make sure it's clear that women are part of this too because in the, the culture of the time, women were sort of off to the side. They weren't considered important. And so we see them specifically mention and women to note this, that, that women are part of this too, that they're also being baptized. They're also involved in this, right? Which is, which is helpful, right? Especially if you get into kind of weird patriarchal kind of things. Um, and so... So they're basically turning to Jesus, listening to Philip and turning to Jesus. And so then it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, at first glance, this seems like good news, right? This seems good. It's like, yeah, even Simon believed, and he's in. The problem is that Simon's heart might not be quite right here. And we're going to see that in a minute. And so there's an important thing to note because it says Simon believed and was baptized. It doesn't say what he believed. And there's a bit of a problem in that, right? Because we can believe a whole lot of things and think we're in, right? Think we're part of this thing. And we're, as we're going to see in a minute, I don't think Simon was. I don't think Simon had saving faith. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll see why. So let's talk about Simon real quick, because this is going to come up a lot. Simon, 
is this really interesting character that apparently has had a lot of influence or whatever else. But Simon also is possibly later known as Simon Magus, um, which would make sense. Magus, magician, you can kind of see how those would work. Uh, church tradition, which means we don't know for sure, but this is just what was handed down, says that he is the same person as Simon Magus, who was a really big problem for the early church, basically. Uh, he was a heretic and caused a lot of trouble in the early church. And so it wouldn't be that surprising if this was the same person. And we'll see why in just a second. It says, in seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now there's nothing wrong with being amazed with signs and miracles, right? I'm amazed with that kind of stuff, right? I'm amazed just reading about it. The problem is probably that Simon's excitement over those things weren't for the right reasons. He was probably excited because he saw opportunity, right? He's been incredibly influential. He's been gathering people around him, probably for profit. And now he sees a greater power. And there's a good chance he's after it. It says, uh, verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria uh, had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. So it's, it's this moment where I, and I imagine the apostles were like, what? <laughs> right? Like those guys are in too? Really? You know, like I, I was sure they would, you know, whatever. And so they're like, well, we better send Peter and John down there to check this out. Right? So they're going to send the two, like the head honchos, right? The big guys, right? They're going to send the big guns down there to see what's going on. Uh, possibly also they've heard that, that, uh, that they haven't received the Holy Spirit down there yet. And so they might be going to check that out. We don't really, we're not given like clear indication what their, what their drive was for going down there, but they're like, hey, we're going to go check this out. And so it says, um, uh, and it says that they came down, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had been only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid hand, their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so um, we have to pause here because a question of theology comes up in this moment that has divided many churches, which is the question, is this the norm? Is this the norm, right? Why haven't they received the Holy Spirit yet? They believed and they were baptized Shouldn't they have gotten the Holy Spirit? And so this is divided churches, right? Some churches take a position, or some denominations take the position that, no, these are two separate events that you believe and get baptized. And later someone prays for you and you receive the Holy Spirit, right? Our church would not take that stance. And most, I would say most Christians would not take that stance. That's, that's atypical. And I would say that the New Testament lays it out pretty clearly that there is a link between believing and receiving the Holy Spirit. So I would describe this as an unusual event then. Not the norm, but in fact, a specific special event. Why has the Holy Spirit come down on these particular believers automatically, right? And I would say that the passage even implies that because of verse 16. He says, for he had not yet, he being the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. Why write that unless that was the norm, right? He had to explain, well, they had, the, the, you know, the Holy Spirit hadn't come. This is unusual, right? So these guys are going to have to go down and do this, right? Why write that if that was the norm? There, there's no need to explain, right? So I think the verse itself actually backs up the stance that this is not normative. This is unusual. Something unusual is happening here, which then might make you ask the question, well, why? Why is this the case? And I can't speak for God. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> here's a guess. Okay, here's a guess. This is, this is my guess. 
we have the, the, this church forming in Samaria, right? The enemies, right? Jews have traditionally hated Samaritans and vice versa. They don't like each other. We see that all over the New Testament. There's this huge tension between them because they, can, they cannot agree on these very important basic principles. And there's, there's this, this rift, this divide between them, right? And they, the, the Jews look down on the Samaritans, right? So you could imagine if the church got going there without any influence from the, the central church, right? That Peter and John and the apostles, we could see this happening, right? Two totally different pathways, maybe different theologies, all kinds of weirdness happening, right? Maybe the, the Jewish believers believe that the Samaritan believers aren't really Christians and they want nothing to do with them. You could see this big rift and divide happening. Would this be the intention of Jesus? No. Right? Jesus is really clear over and over again. The New Testament is really clear over and over again. What does he want? He wants unity, not division. So what's the best way to formulate unity between these two churches? Put Peter and John physically there, physically praying for these new believers and seeing the Holy Spirit fall on them, seeing that they are in fact Christians. You can't get any more clear evidence than that for, Jane, for, uh, for Peter and John, who will then carry that back to the church and a link will be formed between the Samaritan church and the church at Jerusalem, Right? Now, again, all just speculation, but I think it's fair speculation that probably this is why this happened, right? It's so that Peter and John could be present and involved in this process, witnessing the Spirit being poured out on Samaritans. And by the way, this is going to be a foreshadow of, a, of another group of people who are very important to us <laughs> that I won't get into in a couple chapters that uh, have a similar experience, right? I think God is being pretty careful to make sure that it's really obvious that his church goes beyond Jews. He's being really careful to show the evidence to the Jews so the Jews aren't looking down on them or thinking that they're not totally believers or some other thing. He's trying to demonstrate this new thing he's doing, right? And I think that's why we have this unusual event. I don't think this is normative. I wouldn't describe this as normative. I think you believe and you receive the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the New Testament teaches in general. So moving on. It says uh, at verse, uh, I lost my spot here. <laughs> this is what happens when I leave my notes. 18, thank you. Um, now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone who I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. If this isn't an obvious issue, <laughs> it should be. Right? That, that Simon's thought process here is, oh, I'll buy this ability from them and then I can do this. I mean, without having to examine his heart very carefully, we can tell really clearly something's not right here. Right? There, there should be all kinds of red flags popping up in your head. Right? In fact, interestingly enough, we've, we've formed this word, and I, I hadn't heard it before, uh, but apparently it's a, a somewhat common term. It's called simony. Has anybody heard the term simony? Anybody familiar with that? Okay, good. I don't feel stupid now. Um, simony is a description of selling a position or a right or a power or forgiveness or indulgence or some other thing for money. We use his name to describe it, right? Because this is obviously wrong. 
right? There's obviously something wrong here. And his motivations are obviously not, oh, I want people to know Jesus, right? In fact, it's likely, we can't say for certain because the text doesn't say, but it's likely that he's thinking, hey, I can make a really good profit from this. If I buy this now, boy, it's a good investment, right? His heart is messed up right now. And we're going to see that Peter immediately identifies that. It says in verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. There's a pretty heavy implication there. You do not have life. I hope your silver goes with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. And the, the matter could be just this idea of giving the Holy Spirit or evangelism. I think it's Jesus as a whole. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now, notice what Peter commands him to do. Verse 22, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. In other words, you are still in your sin. Nothing has changed. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, um, when we see Simon's response there, it again feels a little hopeful. You're like, oh good, he doesn't want that to happen. But notice Simon doesn't seem like he feels bad or like he's done something wrong. He just doesn't want the punishment. Okay. This is where we get to one of those uncomfortable moments because the, the question then becomes, why is this present? Why is this here in the Bible? It's for us. It's a heart check, right? It's a heart check. Simon probably had some involvement in the church at this point, maybe some power, some influence, some leadership. He was probably doing all the good religious activities, all that kind of thing, maybe, you know, uh, praying daily and attending all these church events and all that stuff. But Simon probably didn't know Jesus at all, right? And it's an important heart check for us because the biggest problem Simon seems to have is a lack of repentance. He doesn't see himself needing Jesus. He doesn't see himself in guilt and iniquity and needing a savior. He sees this as a road to something nice, and we have to be careful because a lot of the time, this is the message we do get, right? That Jesus is this like nice addition to our lives. Jesus is everything. When we commit ourselves to Jesus, it's not just two free tickets out of hell. It's committing our whole lives. It's my life is now done. Your life begins in me, right? And we need to understand that Simon's belief here was probably belief in all the great stuff he was about to get. It wasn't belief in Jesus as the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. There wasn't a repentance in him saying, I'm a sinner in need of someone to come in and mess my life up so that I stop doing this. I need someone to die for my sins because I can't, I don't want to. I want someone to come in and take care of what I've done wrong and help me do this right. right. For Simon, it was probably position, power, authority, recognition, avoiding hell, whatever the things were, but not Jesus. We have to be really care careful of false conversions. 
Whether you've been here for like 50 years or this is your first day, this is a fair question to ask because people deceive themselves in this way. They're like, look at all these great things. I'm doing all the good things. I'm at church. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I must be a Christian. But that doesn't make you a Christian. The, The phrase that I love, that doesn't make you a Christian anymore than standing in a garage makes you a car. Right? What makes you a Christian is submission of your life to Jesus and faith in him, asking him to lead your life. That I need you to pay for my sins and I want to do it your way, not my way. I'm repentant. I want to get away from what I'm doing wrong and head your direction. And this is really important because Jesus said, and this is one of the scariest statements he made in my opinion, He said, many will come to me on that day, the day of judgment. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many great works in your name, like Simon. And Jesus will say, away from me, you doers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That is a scary statement. And it should be scary. It's meant to be scary. Because ultimately, we can do something about it now, right? If we realize I'm that person, I'm just showing, I'm doing, going through the things. I'm doing all the good things, but I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know if I care to put sin away. I don't know if I want to walk in the ways of Jesus or look like him, right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Like that's a clue. If you, <laughs> if you don't want to keep Jesus' commandments, you may not love him, right? And so we can do something about it now. We can't do something about it on that day. So do something about it now right? Don't, don't let that moment pass by, right? The, the, the cool thing with this statement, Peter specifically says, repent, right? In other words, Simon, it's not too late. Your heart is messed up before God. You are a mess right now. You have no idea who Jesus is or why we do this. Repent, believe, make things right while you can. And so when God calls into your heart and says, repent, Don't go this other direction you're trying to go. Don't do this. Don't be flipping about your sin, right? When he calls, answer, respond. Because Simon didn't. If church tradition tells us anything, Simon didn't. So this is a sobering reminder yet again to ask good questions, right? The Bible's full of these. And it's not that we should be living in constant dread and fear that we don't know Jesus and we're not safe, but we also don't want to not ask that question, right? We don't want to ignore that question and then miss our chance to respond to it. So I want to encourage you to hold hold on to, if something, God is stirring something inside of you, hold on to that. Because we're going to move forward just a little more in this passage. We're going to finish off this passage. It's going to take a totally different turn. But I don't want you to lose sight of anything God is telling you right now. Do something about that thing. If you need to come and talk to me, there's going to be some prayer people up here. You can come and talk to me if you need to talk it out. If you just need to do some business with God, you can hang out afterwards and just talk to him. But, but don't ignore those, those calls from God, right? Because our hearts do harden over time. And the more we ignore them, we harden up more and more until we won't answer. So don't ignore them. Do something about it now. If you feel like God is saying something to you, do it. Don't ignore him. So let's move, move to the next section. It says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, this being Peter and John, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So on the way back, they're like, yeah, let's do this. And they're like telling everybody on the way back, which is really cool. 
All right, so now we get to part two. This is essentially a two-part sermon. <laughs> this, this could have been two different sermons. I found that out while I was preparing. So here we go, part two. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And I imagine if I'm Philip right now, it's like, um, why? <laughs> right? Like, that's kind of a weird instruction to give someone, right? It's like, you, you do see what's happening, right? He, no, we're not going to stay. We're going to go to the deserted spot where no one is in the desert. Okay. <laughs> and so he rose and went, which is a testament to, to Philip's willingness to just listen to God, right? It's like, well, that makes no sense, but here I go, right? So he goes to this desert place. And it says, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, which are all just titles, except he may have actually been a eunuch. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents. Um, we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, who was in charge of all her treasure. So he's a very important official. That's a serious thing to be in charge of, of someone's treasure, right? Very important person. And he had come to Jerusalem and was returning, seated on, in his chariot and was reading from the prophet Isaiah. So this guy's interesting. He's a, he's a guy from Ethiopia, an African, who believes in Yahweh, but probably isn't a full Jew because of his <clears throat> condition. And, uh, and so he, he wouldn't have been allowed by the Jews to convert fully. He couldn't, he couldn't become a full Jew. He could just be kind of like a, like a, a worshiper of God, right? So his experience of worshiping God probably wasn't great, right? He would have to go to that space in the uh, temple where if you remember, Jesus was flipping all the tables and he was so mad, right? He's like, you've turned this into a, a den of thieves, right? The reason he was so mad is because that space was for the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews to come worship Yahweh. That's where he would have had to have gone is this place with all the chaos and pigeons and whatever else was happening in there, right? That's where he would have worshiped. So probably not a great experience. On top of that, he's a foreigner, which, you know, probably wasn't that popular. He looked totally different. He was probably black, right? Jews are not black. And he wasn't a, he was a Gentile, which already makes him look down upon, right? So the process of him going to worship God and coming back, that, that's actually really sweet. This guy was really serious about his love for God. To go and do that. Probably knew everything about that, what it's going to be like. But he's like, I want, to go and, I want to go to Jerusalem and worship God. Which just makes me immediately love him. Right? Like there's something really sweet about this man. Right? And so he goes and uh, he's on his way back. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he was probably reading out loud because that would have been tradition at the time. You, re you read scriptures out loud, right? So he's probably reading out loud as he's like bumping along in the road, right? Actually, Roman roads were really good, so maybe it wasn't bumping. Um, and it says, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot, which was weird, by the way, for the culture. That would have been super weird. You didn't do that, right? And so Philip ran to him. Probably not too hard to catch up with a chariot um, when it's bumping along. And it, said, and it says that he heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. And I think this is one of those moments where God just placed the right question in Philip's mind. Like, okay, ask him this, right? Because he's like, oh, do you understand what you're reading? Which is also a weird question when you think about it. Kind of insulting, <laughs> right? Like if I heard someone reading out loud, I walked up and was like, hey, do you understand what you're reading? They're like, Yes go away. Who are you? Right? Like, but this was like the exact question that was perfect for this situation, right? Because <laughs> I just love this. You have to love the way this guy responds. He, and he, it goes, and he said, 
How can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to join him. Right? Like, think about this situation. Like, some random dude runs up. He's like, hey, do you know what you're reading? And he's like, no, come on up. Right? Like, this is, this is cool. This is like one of those very obviously, like, lined up by God situations, right? And so this, this random person, Philip, joins him in the chariot and sits down. He's like, okay, let's see. What are we, what are we reading? Okay, it's Isaiah. Yeah, I see that. And so it says, uh, you know, <laughs> This wasn't already like a softball pitch, right? Like the easiest setup for the gospel you've ever seen. It says this next, verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. And this is Isaiah 53, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before the shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. If you know this passage, this could not be a more obvious picture of Jesus. Like out of all of the verses you could pick in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is probably one of the easiest ones to launch from. It's like you read it and you're like, this, what in the world else would this be but Jesus? Like there's nothing makes sense. In fact, it's such an effective verse. There's an organization called Jews for Jesus that works in Israel and basically tries to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. They usually use this passage. This is one of their main passages because it's so obvious. So this is like, here you go, Philip. <laughs> right? Like this could not be easier. Like, oh, and then and then if it if it wasn't already easy enough, the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Like basically, like, hey, could you tell me about Jesus? Right? <laughs> like, this is like that witnessing moment we all wish we could have, right? <laughs> Where it's like our next door neighbor's like, hey, notice you've been going to church a lot. Why you do that? <laughs> right? Like, you know, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and so, you know, I imagine Philip's like crawling out of his skin with excitement for this like moment. Like, oh my gosh, this could not be more set up by God. And so unsurprisingly, Philip opened his mouth and begin with the, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Right. And one thing that I, I like about that statement, Philip opened his mouth. Sometimes that's the hardest part in witnessing. Just starting. Right? It's like, you know, you're like in the back of your mind, like, oh, I really should say something about Jesus. Uh, right? And you're just like scrambling in your mind, like, I don't know, that would be weird. Right? Just start. Right? There's this, this thing that happens when we just open our mouths and start. And then God kind of starts filling in the gaps for us. Right? And so he opens his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And that good news is obviously, hey, guess what? You Ethiopian who can't be really part of God's people, you have a straight beeline to God now. You have a way to be forgiven. You have a way to have a right relationship with him. You have a, you have a way to have direct access to God. And I imagine this, this Ethiopian eunuch was just, his mind was just being blown, right? Like he was probably just freaking out. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Is this for real? Right? And so, um, this next part is just, again, so sweet. It makes me love the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, which, and I, I, I don't know what kind of water. This could be like a ditch on the side of the road that had a puddle. I don't know. He sees some water, and it's like, immediately, he's like, Oh, see, here's water. 
What prevents me from being baptized? Let's do it right now. Come on. Come on. Get out of the chariot. Let's go. Right? Like, he's like so fired up. He's like, I want to do it right now. Let's jump in. Come on, Philip. No, you don't worry about your socks. Right? Like, this... This guy is like so fired up about Jesus. He wants to be so obviously in. He wants to be baptized right now. Right, this is such a cool picture. This is just beautiful. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, the Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The New Testament creates a very clear link between believe and be baptized. Right? Baptism is the next obvious, clear step. You believe and you get baptized, right? And for some reason, I don't really know when this started happening or how it happened. We started like pull those two things way apart, right? Like you believe and then like eight years later, you're baptized, right? But that's not the norm in the New Testament. The norm in the New Testament is these guys were getting like baptized like the day of, right? Like they're, they're getting dunked. And, and I think that there's, there's some, some, I'll say encouragement here for us that we need to stop trying to wait for the special moment for the baptism, right? I remember doing this really clearly when, when I was, I was, I was Christian for years before I got baptized. And the main reason wasn't because I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be baptized or whatever. It's because I wanted it to be like this special moment, right? And I was like, I want to make sure my friends and my family are there and I'm going to, uh, the angels will sing at this time. And right, like, and and I actually read this story that was this exact story I read. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> right? Like, it just dawned on me. I was like, I'm being really dumb about this. <laughs> like, I've, I've really built this into a whole thing. And I went to Brandon Ziski, our old senior pastor at the time. His college pastor was like, hey, you guys doing like baptism anytime soon? He's like, no, let's put one together. And, and I got baptized in uh, CBC because that's where we had, we, didn't, we couldn't use here at that time. So we were at CBC bar in their space. It was freezing cold. And uh, I think there was like a picture taken, <laughs> you know, like that was it. But it didn't matter because for me, it was everything I needed, right? That was my opportunity to declare my faith in Jesus. And so I'm, I'm just going to say something wacky here. If you haven't been baptized and you're like, man, I need to get baptized. Why don't we go down to the lake today? Not a joke. I know some of you guys are like, ah, that's funny. No, serious. You want to go down to the lake and get baptized? Let me know afterwards. We'll do it. I'll go baptize you in the lake. Let's get you baptized, right? Believe and be baptized. It's just, it's just part of the process, right? It's part of it. It's this incredible thing, this tangible thing that God has given us to experience a little taste of what Jesus has done for us, right? We, we relate to his death as we go into the water, right? It's like our, ourselves dying and then we come up renewed, new life, right? Just like Jesus was resurrected. It's so cool. If you haven't been baptized, please get baptized. Obviously, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus or you're ready to, let's get you baptized. So we'll just finish it up here. Uh, I'm going to invite the band up. It says, and when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord, it's in, in the ESV says, carried Philip away. And uh, this is kind of a soft translation for this word. Uh, and, and I think they're just trying to figure out what to do with it because it's kind of weird. The, the word is, is snatched. Kind of like if you had something in your, in your hand and I went, yeah, grabbed it really quick. That's what happened to Philip, right? And so there's some different like theories on what happened. I like the teleportation theory. That's my favorite, right? That Philip just went boop, and like disappeared, <laughs> right? And I don't know if that's really what happened or not. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna preach that to the grave or anything like that, but I think that's fun, right? And it's actually consistent with scripture because if you remember when Jesus got in the boat 
on the day when the waves, you know, the, 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 the waves calm down and then the boat just teleports to the shore, right? It's like, and then they were on the shore, like just there, right? So could happen, right? Philip might've just teleported, which I hope one day I get to do. That would be cool. Maybe like at a convenient time, but um, just eating dinner. All of a sudden I'm gone. Um, <laughs> the things that run through my head. Uh, anyway, so and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And you know what? Church tradition, again, church tradition, we don't know for sure. Church tradition tells us that the Ethiopian eunuch was the one who brought faith to Africa. Isn't that cool? Right? Like God set up this really, really obvious gospel moment. This guy is like just the perfect candidate. Like he's just so loving God, even though he barely has any access to him, right? Wants to follow him and all this stuff. And, and God's like, that's the man I want to use, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab this guy, puts, puts faith in him, and he takes it back. And he's, he's obviously influential, right? He's a, an official and all that stuff, has this cool impact. It's just so cool. It's such a sweet story. And so he goes on his way praising God and, and assumedly just preaching Jesus and, and bringing faith to his people. And it says, but Philip found himself at, and I had to write this one down because I wasn't sure how to pronounce it, as, as Zotus, um, which apparently is also Ashdod, if you're familiar with Ashdod in the Old Testament, just connecting point, same place. Uh, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so, I mean, this is like Philip's just pattern. Philip just loves to evangelize. He's anybody, you know, I imagine, imagine Philip's like that guy that you, you sometimes see that it just walks up and says, hey, how you doing? Do you know Jesus? Right? Like that guy, right? He's like, he's, he's unabashed, unafraid. He's going to tell you about Jesus. And honestly, I think we could learn from him. I know I can, right? Like we have the greatest thing anybody can imagine in Jesus, right? Like we have a treasure that no one could possibly put anything up against. So let's share that with people, right? It's like, we're, we're so quick to share like our favorite food or <laughs> uh, our favorite TV show or whatever. What about Jesus? The greatest thing we can offer someone. And I, I know, I know it's, it's hard. It's hard to figure out how do I go about it and how do I like bring it up right? I don't want to offend them and all these weird things that come to the mind. But I think sometimes we just need to be a little bolder. We just need to say it not worry so much about what's going to happen or if we're going to say it just right or whatever else. Trust that the Spirit's going to work with us. He's going to help us make it work. And yeah, we might sound like idiots. That's okay. It's okay if we sound like blubbering fools. What's wrong with that? We're blubbering fools for Jesus. That's a good thing, right? God's not going to be like later, he's not going to be like, boy, you did not say that well, right? <laughs> like, I cannot imagine that conversation with God. So let's, let's be sharing the gospel with people at every opportunity. Because ultimately we get to see this really cool picture of the Ethiopian eunuch receiving it so well, right? And, and in a lot of ways, Philip did this wrong. Right? Like he, he did a lot of things that were really awkward, but God was working in it. Like it worked great. And ultimately the gospel is good news that we have for others. It's not about getting power, prestige, or advancement or, or anything else. Like maybe Simon thought of it. It's, just, it's not about, you know, just getting our free tickets out of hell and doing whatever we want. It's about following a great God who loves us greatly and has great things in store for us. 
It's, it's about a God who knows what's best for us and so tells us what to do, right? Like a dad does. Dads are not good dads if they don't tell their kids what is good, what they should do. And so when God tells us do this and don't do this, it's not because he's like, ha ha, watch this, right? It's because he knows us. He knows what we need and he's commanding us to walk in his ways and ultimately to put our trust in a good savior who died for us, who shed his blood for us, who gave his very life for us so that we could have life, so that we could be full of life. And not just in eternity. So many times we get that thought in our head, right? Jesus came to give us life now, right? I love John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you feel stolen from, killed, and destroyed, it's because the thief is winning. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm not talking about wealth or possessions or some other thing. I'm talking about true life. Rich life in Jesus. A life that you cannot possibly get your head around until you experience it. And that carries into eternity. That's the God that we follow. That's who we put our trust in. And when we commit our lives and we put our faith, when we believe in Jesus, it's submitting to that. It's saying, I want that. I, I don't want this junk that I've been doing. Get that out of here. Help me just burn it. I want to walk in your ways because they're so much better. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the two opposing examples of Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I know I see some of myself in both. I don't want to see any of myself in Simon. So Lord, I invite you to call me into repentance. I invite you to discipline me like a good father disciplines his children. Because I know that ultimately when you discipline us, when you call us to repentance, you are bringing us to something so much better than the thing we are caught up in. We walk in dead things and think we're experiencing life. And it's just gonna lead to more death. But you offer us life and life abundant. Jesus didn't just died to pay for our sins, though he absolutely did that. He died so we could have life, so that we could live, really live, not enslaved to sin, but enslaved to righteousness, to experiencing the goodness of what you designed us to be in. So God, I ask if there's anybody in this room tonight, today, who has not put their trust in that amazing God, who has not received the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus and turned away from their old life to go into something new and so much greater, would you call them now into that? Would you make their heart burn inside of them until they can't take it any longer and they cry out saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And for those of us who've gotten off path, who've gotten off track, who have been buying into junk the enemy's been feeding us, would you help us to see it and say, no, I don't want that anymore. I want that gone. I want that dead. I want that crucified. I want your life. Would you call us into repentance, the sweetest thing we can do to experience life in you? 
Would you help us to crucify the flesh and live in the spirit? And would we be so full of the joy of Jesus that it pours out of us? When we sing to you, would we be weeping for joy because of who you are? Would you rock our lives? Would you, if we're, if we're the type like I am that doesn't often get very emotional and can be kind of just staunch and whatever, would you break us down and make us so uncomfortable with the emotions we're feeling? Because you are so active inside of us, stirring us up to love you. Would you draw us into new life? like only you can do. It's in the powerful, beautiful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.